When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 262, and we are recording on December 22nd. I'm Jen Northington. I'm here with Amanda Nelson. We're coming to you from Book Riot, and this is our last episode of 2020. Yay! We did it! (laughs) The last thing of anything in 2020 brings me joy right now. Like the last, I don't care, my last oil change. Yes, last one. (laughs) don't care. It's very exciting. Uh, Yeah, I hear that. I also am full of holiday cookies. I I baked a bunch yesterday. That's the right way. Yeah. You know, I you got to do what you got to do in 2020. And it's snacks. Snacks is what I have to do in 2020. (laughs) The thing that I did yesterday was took Petunia, who if you are new is my Rottweiler puppy who is four months old over to Rebecca's house. And her like neighbor got a golden retriever puppy named Moose. Yes. So Moose came over because socializing puppies in COVID is really hard. You know, you can't go to dog parks. You can't go to... So we did like a distanced outdoor puppy meeting party thing. And it was adorable. (laughs) And now my soul is full. It was the cutest. Like, oh my God. Moose is this just shaggy golden retriever who, you know, likes to dig holes. And Petunia's... I don't know. It was just that very... It was cute. It was just soul affirming. I was just going to say that's extremely heartwarming. I was lucky enough last Mm -hmm. week to get an hour in Rebecca's backyard, socially distanced from Rebecca, Amanda, and the dogs. (laughs) And it was, not going to lie, probably the best part of my entire vacation that one hour. (laughs) Because they don't care. Just watching them frolic is like that. Look at that. They know they know no troubles. Yeah. Like they're (laughs) fine. Everything's fine. It's so nice. All right. Let's talk. I mean, we could talk about puppies for 45 minutes, but maybe we should talk (laughs) about books, I guess. Uh, (laughs) So if you're new here, welcome. This is a personalized reading recommendation show, we swear, um, which means that you can send in your questions about what book you should read next. Maybe you need a recommendation for a friend or a family member or a book club or something, whatever. Uh, You can send those questions in via email to getbooked at bookriot.com, or you can drop them in the form that's at the bottom of the show notes, which are on bookriot.com for each episode. And yeah, we I we're just gonna dive right in here. We've we've got some yeah. questions and we're gonna recommend some books. And answers. And answer. <laughs> we even have answers today. All right. <laughs> Our first question is from Becky, who says I read The Switch by Beth O'Leary after hearing about it on the show, and I'm currently reading Red, White, and Royal Blue and loving it. The one thing about The Switch that really caught my attention was that it was about a woman who was burnt out in her career. I appreciated that the book didn't push a girl boss narrative, nor did it glorify hustle culture or putting your career first in life. As someone who has experienced burnout in her career multiple times, it was refreshing to read a book like this and live vicariously through the main character. I'm looking for another fictional light book that has a similar theme if that exists. If not something that's specific, then another book I can cuddle up with with a cup of tea, my cat, and a fake fireplace on the TV after a long day at work. (laughs) Oh, that's great. I also am a fan of the fake fireplace. Okay, uh, let's take a sponsor break and then we will give our picks. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, long after we are gone by Tara Shelton Harris, 
is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. All right, Amanda, what do you have for burnout light fiction? I went with a cozy mystery series. It's Death by Dumpling by Vivian Chien, which is the first book in the Noodle Shop mystery series. And it does have a little like light romance. I I don't know how else to put that. Yeah, it's got a little bit of like there's a romance adjacent, Mm. you know, it's implied, whatever. But it is very cozy and perfect for fake fireplace reading. It's about a woman named Lana who has just experienced a very dramatic breakup and also like a super cinematic walkout of her terrible job, you know, where like she gets fired, but she also quits really loudly. So it's kind of, you know, half of one, uh, six of one, half dozen of the other. Um, And she goes back to Cleveland where her family lives to work in their Chinese restaurant called the Holy Noodle House. And the tagline for this series is, welcome to the Holy Noodle House where the Chinese food is to die for. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. Um, So she's like, it's very similar to the situation in The Switch where she's burnt out. She's coming out of a really terrible relationship. She doesn't really know what she wants to do with her life. Um, and so she's landing in a family, you know, bosom <laughs> to, to kind of figure those things out. So she's waiting tables, even if it means like she's going to deal with her family and her mom, who's constantly trying to marry her off, which she like, does not appreciate. And then the property manager, the restaurant's in like a strip mall, and the property manager whose office is a few doors down turns up dead after he ate some shrimp dumplings from their restaurant. He has a, had a very very severe uh, seafood allergy. But the catch is everybody on staff knew that. So like, there's no way that they would have purposefully delivered him seafood dumplings. And Lana and the chef, who is a friend of hers, both end up being suspects in the murder of this guy. And the cop who comes to investigate the murder is like, scrummy, like super cute. <laughs> and maybe shouldn't be flirting with Lana because she is the suspect in a murder. <laughs> but when has that stopped anyone in a cozy mystery before? <laughs> Never. It's never stopped anyone. Um, so that's what you're you're in for. You're in for like who fed Mr. Fang the the seafood dumplings. That's the whole thing. And it's just like cozy, it's light. You know, obviously it's violent because somebody dies, but it's not like gruesome or anything. There's a little bit of romance. I think it's really great. So that's Death by Dumpling by Vivian Chien. First of all, good use of the words bosom and scrummy. <laughs> <Just like, laughs> <Thank> I <say> <laughs> excellent excellent (laughs) word usage uh okay my pick is a little less on the nose uh than amanda's that's i have to read that immediately um but i think it still works for your purposes it's duke by default by Alyssa cole i want to give a quick content warning for a laced drink in this book because i know that is hard for some people to read about okay but This is a romance. It is about, uh, it's technically the second in the series. I love this whole series, but this might be my favorite in the series for various reasons. And the heroine, Portia Hobbs, is uh, like, she's from New York City. She's a socialite. She's a hot mess. She has like Mm -hmm. jumped from 
sort of career attempt to career attempt and nothing has quite managed to stick. And she is like feeling she has a lot of feelings about it because she throws herself into these things and then they don't work out. And people are like, oh, Portia, like so flaky, like but she's trying. She's trying. It just never somehow comes together for her. And so she's, like, trying to find herself and, like, turn over a new leaf or whatever. And she gets an apprenticeship to a swords maker in Scotland, because why not? And it turns out that her boss is, like, a very sexy silver fox swords maker, because, of course, he is. And the two of them, you know, she, like, maces him by accident upon meeting him. Well, she maces a dude on purpose, but it turns out that it's her boss and she did not need to mace him. But here we are. Uh, So they have a rocky start and um, have to, like, you know, figure out their own business as as also and deal with their attraction to each other. And it's very heartwarming and affirming in all kinds of ways. And it deals in interesting ways, I think, with first of all, ADHD. And then also, um, like, drinking culture is is very, I think there's a good look at it here, and burnout. And the thing that I loved about the portrayal of burnout in this book is that it's really all about boundaries for Portia. Like, she she has to figure out, like, how to take care of herself first, which is so often the issue with burnout. It's like you get so externally focused and you want to do good things for other people. Like burnout isn't always you have the worst boss in the world. Like sometimes it's that. But sometimes it's that you're so dedicated to a thing that you completely lose the ability to switch off from it. And how do you like figure that out and also maintain those relationships that you've poured so much of yourself into. Like, how do you do that? And this book takes a really good look at that. So I love it for that kind of portrayal of burnout. And also just because it's a great romance series. So again, that is A Duke by Default by Alyssa Call. Oh, also, I wanted to give a quick shout out to a nonfiction book that is not light reading, but is really worth it if you are struggling with burnout. It's literally called Burnout. It is by Emily and Amelia Nagoski, and the two of them are just really smart and really dig into, like, where does burnout live in your body? And, like, how can you shed some of that stress? And, like, yeah, how do you figure out how to have a healthy body and a healthy mind in extremely difficult circumstances? So shout out to that. All right. Our next question is from Nathan, who says, I'm a younger reader and have loved reading fantasy. I've been fascinated by books with their own worlds, like my all-time favorite, Harry Potter. I've also enjoyed sci-fi books, such as The Hunger Games, the Throne of Glass books. This is not a very original favorite book list, but would love to have would love to add more books to my family. I would really like a recommendation to a series, author, or a book that's similar to those listed above. Okay, I went with The Novice by Taryn Matharu, which is the first book in the Summoner series. I picked this because it's it's got like a magical school element. It's similar to in similar to Harry Potter. Well, not similar to Harry Potter. I mean, the similarity is that there's a school, right? <laughs> um, it's not like real world magical world hidden, but it's got a school. And it's also got a lot of political intrigue in the kind of the same ways The Hunger Games does and a little bit of The Throne of Glass. I've only read the first one of that, so I'm not quite sure if that's a comp. But if you took Harry Potter and The Hunger Games kind of mushed them together with Pokemon, you would get this, which I, and I loved it. I loved it and my kids loved it, which is a weird thing. <laughs> but there we are. So, I mean, he did. Um, so the, the book is about a, a boy named Fletcher. He's like a teenage boy. He's an apprentice to a blacksmith. He's an orphan who was discovered, who was like found as a a foundling. That's what the word foundling means. By the blacksmith when he was a wee little baby in a basket. And the blacksmith has raised him as his own. He's an apprentice to this man. Um, And he discovers that he has the ability to summon demons from other dimensions. And as alarming as that sounds, it's actually kind of normal in this universe. And the demons are not bad. They're more like demons from, you know, the, oh gosh, what the Philip Pullman series, demons, where it's just like another creature, right? Um, and so not only does he have the ability to do it, he's summoning very rare kind of demons. Uh, and when you summon a demon, they help you perform magical feats. So he has summoned this tiny little dragon friend to be his little buddy, who I kept calling Pikachu, which is not the <laughs> dragon's actual name, and is also not accurate in any way. Like, he doesn't summon lightning, whatever. But the Pokemon stuff, like, could not get away from me. Um, and so once it gets out, you know, word gets out that he can do this, he is taken to the Adept Military Academy, where the people who live in this country are trained in this art of, like, summoning demons and performing magic. And then they're put into the Empire's army to fight this war that they have ongoing against orcs. There's also elves. It's very Lord of the Rings. When he gets 
into the school. He's surrounded by basically the entire house of Slytherin. Like everyone's really rich and jerky and looks down on him because he's poor and a no one. But he's also more powerful than everyone else in the school. Are You're seeing like the Harry Potter similarities here. So there's that happening. And then there's also all this political intrigue that he can involve in. His country's been at war with orcs and also elves for like eons. And he starts to figure out why and what his role in that is going to be. So if you took like some of the most well-known science fiction and fantasy like brands almost and mush them together into a very readable series, you would get this. So it's a lot of fun. That's The Novice by Taryn Mathrew. I picked The Gilded Wolves by Roshni Chokshi, which is both the name of the series and the name of the first book. And I picked this because it is an alternate history with magic. And it has a lot of the same, like, sort of like angsty almost feelings that the Throne of Glass series has. Like, there's a lot of, like, torn loyalties and, like, dramatic, complicated relationships, which I think The Hunger Games also has in spades. And it has magic and uh, recognizable real world, sort of like Harry Potter. So I think it's got a lot of elements that you will really love. Uh, It is a bunch of teenagers, as I said, in, like, late 1800s Paris. And there's this big exposition that is happening and there are all of these like inventions and magical things. And there are these houses, orders rather is what they're called, of fancy people, wealthy people who also have Mm -hmm. magic. And they all, you know, are trying to one up each other and they have these very strict rules and you can get kicked out or deposed or whatever. And it's all very complicated. And these teenagers are basically planning a heist. There's this magical object that will be at the exposition. They want it. How are they going to get it? Of course, nothing is that simple. Everything is complicated. Everybody has their own backstory and is dealing with different things. And it's just so, it is so readable. It is so intricate and fascinating. Like that world feels so lived in and so real while you're reading the book, which is, I think, you know, that feeling that you're looking for. And I just love the characters. I think you will also love the characters. They're all fascinating in their own way. And they're dealing with things that, like, you don't always see dealt with in uh, fantasy or sci-fi, which I super appreciated. Um, speaking of those things, going to give some trigger warnings now for violent anti-Semitism, racism, and some child abuse. So, like, there's some tough stuff in here, but it's, it's so good. The first two books are out, and then the third one is coming next year if all goes as planned, fingers crossed. So that was The Gilded Wolves by Roshni Chokshi. Our next question is from Amelia, who says, I'm looking for recommendations on realistic fiction books that have a fast and dramatic storyline. I tend to enjoy books with strong female protagonists that are facing competition or challenges from other people. I like books that handle dark, heavy topics that evoke emotion from the reader. I haven't been able to find much to read lately and I'm open to any suggestions I can get. Amanda, what did you pick? All right, I picked The Tenth Muse by Catherine Chung, which comes with a trigger warning for rape uh, and has a very strong female protagonist facing competition or challenges from other people. So you're welcome. Have a good year. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so Catherine is the main character, not the author, although the, also the author's name. Catherine with a K is the main character who was born right after World War II. Her mother is Chinese and her father is white and was a veteran of World War II. And so she has brought her over to the U.S. and she is raised in, I think it's Ohio? I might be getting that wrong. Anyway, she's raised in America and faces all of the kinds of things that a biracial child in the 50s, you know, would face on top of the fact that she's a girl, on top of the fact that she's a friggin' fracking genius. So every time she goes into school and does genius things that geniuses do, she gets crapped on. Like her teachers, you know, say that she has an attitude or that she's acting like she's smarter than she, whatever. She overcomes all of those things, all of those challenges to go to school and graduate school, and she becomes a very famous mathematician. And along the way, she faces all of these obstacles and secrets that are connected to World War II, to her parents, to the Holocaust, and to a bunch of other things. And it turns out that her, like, identity is very complicated in ways, I mean, it already was, right? But complicated in ways that she could not foresee, and it's all wrapped up in what's called the Riemann hypothesis, which is this, like, unsolvable proof of math, you know, that people in her generation have been trying to solve forever, and no one can do it. And so when the book opens, she's 
elderly. She's, I think, in her 70s or 80s and is telling the story of her life. And it opens because she has figured it out. She's figured out the Riemann hypothesis, but she's, you know, she's elderly. She's not really famous anymore. Is anyone going to listen to her? And then she goes on to tell the story of how she solved this proof and how it's all wrapped up into her family history, World War II, the Holocaust, etc. It's super, super complicated. The stuff that she faces is bananas. And it's also got like, not a I mean, I'm saying secret history vibe, and I don't mean like murder in the woods by teenagers. Um, I mean, like that academic kind of dark feeling. So much of her life is in school, whether she's, you know, in school, in grad school, or then when she's older, like teaching, like it's a it's very rooted in the academic world and the kind of racism and sexism that she faces in that world, even though she's like 10 million times more intelligent than everybody around her. And that kind of like tired you know, vibe permeates the book. And I find that really, really compelling that like, I am so tired of being better than everyone and still having to talk to them and like prove myself over and over and over again. It's uh, she's just a really fascinating character uh, who faces so much just like garbage that she overcomes with her brilliant, brilliant brain. And I just love that. It's very satisfying. So that's The 10th Muse by Catherine Chung. Nice. I picked The Map of Salt and Stars by Zane Jukadar. And this comes with trigger warnings for sexual assault and violence towards refugees. This is actually a parallel narrative. It takes place both in like our real world in 2011. The main character, Noor, is young. She's like, I want to say like 11 or 12. And she and her family have moved from New York City to Syria, which is where her parents are from. And because she has lost her father to cancer, like they've gone back to Syria to be closer to family. But she like she's not super comfortable there. Right. She's like a New York City kid. She like kind of is trying to figure out how to fit in. And then on top of that, it's 2011 in Syria. So like bombing starts to happen. There's war, there's protests and they are forced to flee. And so they have to, like, travel across Middle East and North Africa in search of safety. And that is a very fraught and difficult journey. And then the parallel narrative is that her father used to tell her this story about a young woman, like, back in the day, like, Middle Ages kind of era, who is going on an adventure. And Noor is kind of telling herself this story to remain feeling connected to her father and to, I think, like, help her get through her own journey. But they're told in these very interesting interlocking ways. And it's just such a good book. Oh, man, it's so, it is so heartbreaking. It is so rough. And these challenges, you know, especially because I think you're seeing them from the point of view of a young person are just, like, really... Ooh, it's a lot. It's a lot. But you said you liked, you know, books that provoke strong emotion. This will absolutely <laughs> deliver that. And the supporting characters are so wonderful. I mean, you see her mother and her sisters all summoning their own strengths. And she's just surrounded by people who are like trying to do their best. And it's really hard in really, really difficult circumstances. And I just loved it's, it's beautifully written. It's a fascinating story. And it's just so, so compelling. So again, that's The Map of Salt and Stars by Zane Jukadar. All right. Our next question is from Zoe, who says, I'm interested in historical fiction books, mainly in the time around World War II. Some of my favorite books are The Book Thief and Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. Okay. I picked How We Disappeared by Jing Jing Li, which comes with a trigger warning for rape. And this has dual timelines. The first one is 1942 in Singapore when the Japanese invaded. And the main character in this perspective is Wang Di, who was a 17-year-old girl at the time of the Japanese invasion. She's taken from her home by Japanese troops and made to be a, quote, comfort woman, which is forced prostitution. She's held prisoner in a house with a bunch of other women who were also taken from their homes for that express purpose of forced prostitution for the Japanese army. And she's there for a few years, I think, if I remember right. Uh, she becomes pregnant. And then once the occupation ends or the Japanese leave because they realize they're not going to win uh, the women are set free and so she is left on her own pregnant to like survive and then in modern times i think it's like the year two i think it's the year 2000 we are with kevin who is a young boy living in singapore who lives with his parents and his grandmother his grandmother dies pretty soon in the pretty early in the book she's elderly obviously and on her deathbed she confesses something to him thinking that he is his father 
that has to do with his father's birth story. And so he goes on this quest, this 12-year-old boy, to discover the truth surrounding what his grandmother confessed to him on her deathbed about his family. And then you follow both of these timelines as they converge because Wang Di now in the year 2000 is an elderly woman herself. Her husband has just died. And her, her and her husband were married when they were both a little bit older. And she is his second wife. And she kept the secret of her experience during the war from her husband their entire marriage, like 50 for 50 years for their whole marriage. And he had secrets himself from the war also that they just did not keep or did not, uh, you know, tell each other. And so he has just died when the book opens. She's on her own. And now she's figuring out how to like deal with all of these regrets and these this trauma from her past that she's never dealt with. And then her life and little Kevin, little 12 year old Kevin, little cinnamon roll life uh, intersect. Um, based around this mystery of the stuff that his grandmother told him. So it's World War II, also present day, but also like the ways in which World War II is still reverberating, you know, like 80 or some odd whatever years later. And uh, this, I picked this up because it was long listed for the Women's Prize. And I'm so glad I did because I hadn't heard anything about it, but it's it's very affecting and very good. So that's How We Disappeared by Jing Jing Lee. All right. I picked one from my TBR for you. I'm like one of these days going to finally get to this book. And I thought it might Mm -hmm. be one that you were also really into, especially because you loved Hotel in the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. And that sort of tells a story that is not often centered in World War II historical fiction. And Half-Blood Blues takes place in two timelines. The fall of Paris in 1940, there is a German citizen and musician, jazz musician, who's also black, who is named Hieronymus Falk. And he's like a rising star Mm. in the music scene. And he's arrested in a cafe and never heard from again. And then 50 years later, one of his old bandmates, who was also the only witness to his disappearance, is going back to Berlin because uh, he has just like been shown a mysterious letter that like takes him back to all of the events of 1940 and what happened to his friend. And the reason this one is on my list is because People have raved about both the language and like the like jazz musicians in Nazi occupied Paris aspects of this book, which like 100 percent. Yes, I want to read that. Also, like black male jazz musicians in Nazi occupied Paris. Like that is the thing I don't feel like I've seen in any other World War II fiction. They definitely am interested in knowing that story and, and seeing like what Edugan is shaping here. And yeah, it just sounds so compelling. It was also a shortlisted, I want to say, for the um, the Booker. Was it the Booker or is it the National Book Award? It was one of those two. It was shortlisted for a <laughs> we prize. We don't remember prizes anymore. <laughs> no, we don't. I can never, I cannot keep them apart. It was a shortlisted for a prize, which is usually a very good sign. And yeah, I just have heard nothing but fascinating things about this book. And I'm dying to read it, and I thought you might be interested as well. So again, that is Half-Blood Blues by Essie Adugan. All right, and now it is time for another sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun-sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So, in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote-unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space-time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. 
When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Okay, question five is from Shelby, who says, I thought I'd treat myself for my birthday. Whoops, which is past. Sorry. Um, but you said it wasn't time sensitive. <laughs> Thanks, Shelby. <laughs> uh, I thought I'd treat myself for my upcoming birthday by finally sending in a request to your show. I'm not looking for anything super specific here, but I thought I'd mention some of my favorite things to see if it leads to any new discoveries. I lean heavily towards loving horror, fantasy, and sci-fi. I'm open to other genres. I generally prefer following male protagonists, and one of the things I've recently realized is that I'm drawn to quote-unquote soft guys. I don't know if that's quite mm. the right description, but characters that come to mind fitting this description are Thomas Senlin from Josiah Bancroft's Books of Babel, Shadow from American Gods, Hassan from G. Willow Wilson's The Bird King, Marco from the Saga Comics, and maybe <laughs> even Ender from Ender's Game. I guess all of these characters share traits like intelligence, kindness, quietness, kind of the opposite of toxic masculinity. LGBTQIA themes are welcome. And then uh, Shelby lists a couple of uh, their other favorite reads. This is such an interesting question. Mm-hmm. Amanda, what did you pick? I picked Bonds of Brass by Emily Skretsky, which is the first book in the Bloodright trilogy, although I don't think the other two have come out yet. The second one might have. But anyway, I uh, picked this because I think this is a it's a science fiction gay romance and neither of the male characters are toxic. Like they are both very um, emo <laughs> but uh, and like angsty, you know, uh, and very Marco in that way, but and maybe even a little bit of Ender. But there, there's none of that, you know, they, they're not Han Solo, even though this reportedly is sci- uh, Star Wars fan fiction. They're not Han Solo. They're like not out to prove their doodliness. Like they are quiet, introspective. They both have secrets. They're both very kind and thoughtful. And there's a lot of kissing. So and you seem to like that, <laughs> which like who doesn't? <laughs> so it opens in the Umbra Empire's military academy for pilots. And Etienne is the, the main POV character. And he is in love with his best friend, Gal, who's also his roommate. And when the book opens, they're going on like a pretty routine training mission. Like they get in their little spaceships and they fly up into the whatever, air, space. I can't make words about space right now. <laughs> they fly into space and they do their formations and then they come back. Except it goes terribly wrong. And some of his other classmates use the opportunity to try to kill Gal, who is his best friend that he's in love with. It doesn't make any sense to Etienne. Like, he does not understand what's going on. But he saves Gal's life in this plane. And then, of course, demands, like, WTF. <laughs> like, why is everybody trying to kill you? I know you're annoying. Like, you don't do your laundry, but this is not an explanation. And it turns out that Gal is the heir to the Umber Empire. And the problem with that is that the Umber Empire is, like most empires, uh, very violent, very colonialist, actually took over Etienne's home planet, which is the planet that they're on at the moment where the military academy is and killed his family and he was an orphan for many years and roamed the streets and all of that so he's got a lot of trauma and like pent up rage and that is why these students who were also at home on this planet that was destroyed by the umber empire have risen up to try to kill the heir gal is in hiding it's not known that he's the the heir and so you know his best friend etienne is very much like you didn't tell me this like we've known each other for years we've been in the same room forever like how could i not know but he helps him escape and so he is determined to get Gal back to back home, like to his home planet, back to his parents, like keep him safe and then and then decide what he wants to do because he's got these torn loyalties. He's not a revolutionary. He's not like plotting to overthrow this big empire. He has no love for it, but he isn't, you know, that's not like the goal of his life or whatever. But now that he has the air right in front of him, he has to figure out where his loyalties lie. If they are to his home government and his home culture and planet, which is gone, or if they are to like this boy who he loves, who is the heir to a very violent and blood-soaked legacy, even though Gal himself really wants to get on the throne so he can reverse the policies of his parents, which are terrible. So there's a lot of like complicated politics, but mostly there's angst, emoness, and kissing, which is better, <laughs> in my opinion, especially for the end of the year. So that's Bonds of Brass by Emily Skrutsky. 
I picked the first book in the Dream Blood duology, The Killing Moon by N.K. Jemisin. Uh, this one does come with a trigger warning, as always, with N.K. Jemisin's books for harmed children. I picked this because, yeah, I like I also love uh, I sometimes they're called beta males. I don't know that that's exactly what we're looking for here. But, you know, men who are not out to prove their doodliness is a compelling uh, main character. Mm -hmm. And this book has oh such two amazing male characters. It takes place in a fantasy world that is inspired by ancient Egypt. There are, are like goddesses and dream magic. And there are these like sort of assassin priests who can use dreams to heal or kill or, you know, lots of different options uh, in their in their magic. And the when we open the book, the main character, Ihiru, who is a gatherer, so he is an assassin priest, um, has been sent out to kill a trader, uh, like T-R-A-D-E-R, a merchant from like some northern tribe who has been accused of corruption, which is like how the justice system works here, is like, you don't go to prison, they just kill you in your sleep. Like, that's just <laughs> that's just how it works. And so he's off on a mission, but it goes wrong. And as he starts to, like, you know, he doubts himself, like he is trying to figure out what's going on. But then this uh, ambassador from a southern area who is like very wily, she's she's super great. She's amazing. But she's super wily and she crosses paths with him and like sees that what he is dealing with is part of what she's trying to untangle. There's this like conspiracy that she's trying to figure out who's behind it. And then the other male character that I was mentioning, Nijiri, is a hero's apprentice. He's learning to be an assassin priest and is like, you know, sort of hero worships a hero. And they have an amazing, beautiful relationship. And the whole thing is just so well done. The world building is fantastic. The characters are great. There is some horror, like there's some real dark, scary gore, both in the waking world and in the dream world. There is amazing magic. There are like all of the little political imaginations going on. But really the heart of this is the relationships between these three characters and how they come to like work together to solve this question of like who is trying to destabilize things and why. And I, yeah, I think you will love them. The second book is also worth reading, but it has one main male character, one main female character, which should not stop you because it's really, really good. But just saying. All right, so that's The Killing Moon by N.K. Jemison. All right, our next question is from Katie, who says, In October, I read horror or spooky-themed books and really enjoyed sticking to something similar for a while, not to mention it helped me get books read that have long been stuck on my TBR list. Can you suggest another theme with a book to start with? I'm not super into YA or capital R romance, but I'm open to pretty much anything else. Okay, this is fun. I like this question. <laughs> Not only do I get to tell you what to read, I get to give you a whole theme. I love it. Um, so I was thinking since this, you know, is an end of the year show that like January's coming, maybe a theme of learning something new would be fun. So I went with reading memoirs about people who do not have experiences that are exactly like yours, which is, you know, most memoirs because everybody is different. <laughs> um, and so the book that I recommend that you start with is We Have Always Been Here, a queer Muslim memoir by Samra Habib, which comes with a trigger warning for racism. Um, this came out in 2019 and is fairly short. It's just a little over 200 pages. So I think it's, you know, something nice and easy to start the year off with. Samra um, was born in Pakistan and her family are Ahmadi Muslims. So they faced a lot of like very violent threats from Islamic extremists in Pakistan who, who feel like their sect of Islam is blasphemous. So her parents applied for and received refugee status in Canada. So they moved to Canada and that came with just an entirely new set of stuff to deal with. You know, you escape religious persecution, you go to Canada and now you've got to deal with racism, poverty. Samra herself was bullied quite a bit. And then her parents enter her into an arranged marriage when she was, ugh, I think, 16. Yikes. And so like too young <laughs> and it doesn't it doesn't go well, obviously. Um, and she embarks on her own like uh, kind of journey of independence out once she gets out of her marriage, which becomes like an exploration of art and her sexuality, her femininity and her faith and like how all of those things can or cannot work together. So it's not just it's a not just a memoir of her like moving to Canada and that experience and the racism and poverty that came with that, but also um, her 
kind of figuring out who she actually is in this new environment and then dealing with the fallout of that. Because there are some times in the in the memoir where she doesn't really communicate with her family and then she spends that time on her own figuring out a new aspect of herself and then tells her family and then has to deal with that fallout. And then there's also the fallout of that from her religious community and her refusal to surrender her faith to that is I keep saying compelling on this episode, but it's such a compelling thing to read. Like she will not surrender the ground of her religious beliefs to people who won't accept her. Like she just elbows her way in there, makes space for herself and other people who, as the title suggests, have always been there and deserve to be included in the community as much as anybody else. So there's a lot going on. It's a lot packed into a really short book. And, uh, you know, I'm an American. I didn't know anything really about the refugee experience in Canada. And the financial struggles that people face when they apply for refugee status in Canada are really, like, shocking and a thing that I I didn't know anything about. So that was very enlightening. So that's We Have Always Been Here, a queer Muslim memoir by Samra Habib. So I got to the agenda after Amanda, and I saw her suggestion, and then all I could think about was, like, other memoirs that I would recommend to people for 2021. (laughs) But we were trying to give you options here, so I, like, reined it back in, and then I was thinking about what I would want to read at the start of the year if I was, like, free to just read whatever. And I feel like novellas would be a great way to start the year because they are, like, they're short, you can feel like you've accomplished something, like, right off the bat. Like, I feel like a lot of people set themselves like big, huge tasks for start of the year, but like small achievable goals are so great. Mm-hmm. And novellas are super achievable and really good. And so many of them now are available from like libraries or as ebooks. So it's not hard to get them. And I love them. And I just read one while I was on vacation last week that now I have to rave about. It's The Empress of Salt and Fortune by Nevo which a bunch of book writers have been talking about, and they were so right. First of all, the cover, amazing, gorgeous. Secondly, this is fascinating. This is like, I don't even know how to describe it. It's sort of like a reminiscence ghost story. It's not a ghost story. How do I want to say this? So I'll just tell you the plot. Okay, so there's a cleric who is, their job is to go and like find archives and bring them back to their monastery for, you know, archiving. So they go out and they do research. Like they're like a librarian cleric. And Chi, who's, which is the name of the cleric, has gone to this one place that has been like magically locked down for a while. And they want to be the first one to get there to uncover like whatever there is to uncover. And this place is the former palace of the woman who would become an empress, but was an exiled consort when she was sent there. And the cleric, she arrives there and is like poking around. And this woman shows up who was a like lady in waiting to the the empress who is now deceased. And starts like sort of kind of telling Chi some stories, but sort of not. And you gradually over the course of a book, which feels so much bigger than a novella, honestly, start to uncover like how did this empress go from being an exiled consort to the like triumphant victorious empress that she was. And it's such a good, it's so well paced. It's so clever. There's a magic bird. Like, I just loved so (laughs) much about this. And there's a, like, a sequel that's also a standalone, can be read as a standalone that just came out. So I'm really excited to dive into that. But if you love like mythology and fairy tale feeling stories that also have like that really deep human connection uh, at the start of them, it's just this is just so perfect for that. And it does like especially if you're a fan of Neon Yang's work that um, the Red Threads of Fortune, etc. Black Tides of Heaven, that series. It is also sort of it's not silk punk because there's no sci-fi elements, but it is based on Asian traditions and mythology, and it's really beautifully done. Um, so uh, again, that's The Empress of Salt and Fortune by Ni Vo. All right. And our last question. This is nice. Listener Sherry sent in some questions that were not book questions. And we thought since it is the last episode of the year that we would answer them. So Sherry's questions are, I'm curious how many hours a day you read, how many books at the same time, do you read a chapter from each book a day, etc. And do you read anything that you want to read? Do you read anything that you want to read? Or is all of your reading to answer requests? 
Good question, Sherry. Amanda, tell us about your reading habits. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, re- I also appreciated this question. So during the week, I read in that weird window after work and before making dinner. So that like 45 minutes or an hour. And that's usually it during the week. On the weekends, when I have more time, I usually read a lot more. I do have several books going on at once. I'm always in an audiobook. I'm always in a galley from something that's coming out soon or hasn't come out yet. I'm always in something backlist from my shelves. And then I usually have something from various, like a book that we're supposed to be reading for work or for my book club or whatever. So I don't even know how many that is, but it fluctuates. But it is always more than one. It's usually more than three. I do read a chapter from each and then, you know, rotate throughout the day unless I get really caught up in something, which in 2020 never really (laughs) happened, except for with Blacktop Wasteland, which I read in a sitting on my sofa on like a Saturday. But other than that, I would do a chapter of one, chapter of the next, etc. As for like... Do I read anything I want or is all of your reading to answer questions? I will be honest and say that like almost none of my reading is to answer questions. (laughs) Um, It's usually, I'm usually reading what I want, but it's because I pick the questions for the show. Like Jen doesn't do that. That's my, that's like part of my task is to pick the questions for the show. Jen's task is to put the show notes together, you know. And since I do that, it's very easy for me to identify questions. And my brain is like, oh, well, I'm reading something that fits this perfectly right now. I'll just do this question, you know. And so I can pick things that correspond with what I'm reading anyway. If it were the other way around, or if I were on multiple shows like Jen is, then I would be doing a lot more. I mean, I guess it is still reading for the show. Yeah. It's just backwards. Right. Yeah, it's just backwards. Um, so I, I, yeah, I don't know. That's like a weird way of answering that question. In my head, I read whatever I want because I'm an Enneagram 8 and I hate the suggestion <laughs> that I'm controlled by something. But in reality, yes, I am probably reading a lot for the show. <laughs> uh, but you've managed to make it reading what you want for the show, which is exactly yeah, which is ideal. Like <laughs> yes. that's yeah, especially for your Enneagram yeah. eightness. That is that is ideal. Yes. Yeah. I well, I'll answer the last question first since we were just talking about it. Like seventy, at least seventy five percent of my reading is work reading. Sometimes it's more. Sometimes it's less, depending on like how is there an agenda where mostly I have ideas already and I don't need to read anything new. But like at at least I would say at least one book a week is show reading or work reading in some other way. And sometimes it's more. Mm-hmm. And OK, so to rewind. So how many books do I read at the same time? I always have at least three books going at a time. Sometimes it's more. But like I have a, a morning book, like I read a little bit in the morning with breakfast and I want there's like a very specific vibe to that book that I want. It's like a wake up reading session. It's maybe only 20 or 30 minutes, but like it has to be the right kind of book for that. And then I have a bedtime mm-hmm. book, which is different from my morning book. It's my going to sleep book. Um, and it also has to have a very specific vibe. Like it needs to be something that I'm not going to get too wound up in. Often it's nonfiction. Mm. Um, it just like gives me something to think about, but helps put my brain to rest rather than like getting caught up in a plot or is or it's a reread. Sometimes that's almost the only time I reread unless I'm on vacation is for my bedtime book. And then, yeah, I often will read like maybe an hour or two. And two is rare on a weekday, though. Um, Usually at most I get an hour of work reading in during the day. And then on the weekends is when I tend to power through. If I'm reading for work mm-hmm. stuff, that's when they, they really get uh, going along. Unless I decide instead of watching TV that I need to read on a weeknight, which happens sometimes. Not all the time, especially not in 2020. Right. <laughs> um, but sometimes, especially if I'm really caught up in something. So, yeah, it's I mean, it's you know, I do a lot of work reading, uh, but mostly I do manage to like it's the other way around. Like I can't pick the questions to suit my reading, but I do tend to pick my reading to suit my interests as well as that those of the asker. Usually they line up pretty well. Every now and then I read something where I'm like, I just would not have read this otherwise. But often those are fun surprises. So it all works out. Although one day it would be nice to not have any workbooks going. I can't even imagine what that feels like actually at this point. Like I just don't even. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. I, just, right? I can't. I cannot imagine what that would feel like. I mean, we've been doing this show for five years and then SFF, yeah. How long, I don't even know how long that show has been on. I think we're close to episode 100 at this point. So probably like three years. Yeah, it's a while because that show isn't every week. So but yeah, it's it's been a while. And then even before that, you know, I was reading for work because booksellers mm-hmm. like you, you also are reading for work. So it's, it's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I like don't remember a time in my professional life, actually, that I haven't been reading for work. Can I piggyback a question yeah. here that I think people will be interested in? Did you read the same in 2020, like amount of books in 2020 that you usually do? Because I very much did not. So this is so 
so interesting. I, especially because like what I did was a lot of marathoning of like Survivor and baking shows and whatever other like gentle TV I could come up with. I would have sworn that I read barely anything in 2020, but my reading spreadsheet is telling me that I've read more books this year than I read last year, which I don't even, I honestly don't know how to account for it. Like I, the only thing I can think is that like, just because there have been so many fewer other things going on that the little Mm. bit that it feels like I'm reading each day, maybe it's not more each day, but there are more days that I'm reading. Like, is that possible? Mm. It's by like a lot. Like apparently, according to my spreadsheet, I read like a little bit under 100 books in 2019. And in 2020, I've read 130. Wow. Are they shorter? Uh, You know, like, are you reading a lot of novellas? I, yeah, I there's some of them are novellas, but no, most of them are not. It's really odd because I also had a really hard time sticking with books this year. Oh, me too. But somehow I managed to finish 130 books. Like, I literally don't know how it happened. A lot of it, I think there was a lot of romance in there, but there's also a lot of nonfiction. So I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I think I DNF'd like 30% yeah. of I picked up, probably. I just couldn't focus. It was really hard to focus. Do you, like, have numbers? Can you tell if you read more or less? Oh, I read way less. Like, yeah. uh, I think in 2019, I read about 120 books. And this year, I don't think I'll break 100. Yeah. So, which, because I kept not finishing stuff. Like, I'd right. pick something up and I'd be like, you know, like, I can't. <laughs> I just, like, put it, put it away. Because I, and most of my... The genre breakdown is very interesting. This is super nerdy, Ellen. I'm sorry. But like the, the genre breakdown is really interesting. I still read a big chunk, like 30 or 40% of my reading was literary fiction. But that's because I read the Women's Prize long list in February. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. March happened. And then that completely changed. <laughs> and then I just read a lot of crime and like mystery thrillers because I wanted to see bad guys get some comeuppance. And then that's what my 2020 was. <laughs> right. Yeah, I um. I haven't done a a full like, you know, look through at all of Mm -hmm. my reading um, yet, but just skimming it, I can see that I read way more nonfiction this year than I read last year, which is shocking to me because I had. Well, I think Rebecca did the same thing. I'm sorry. but Yeah. And her explanation was that fictionalized, like made up conflict was just no this year. Yeah. You know. Because we had so much real content. Right, right. Well, it's true. I read, yeah, I read a lot of fantasy. I read a lot of nonfiction. And I, I read a lot of romance, which scans, actually, if you think mm-hmm. about, yeah, like dealing with tone. Like there were certain tones that I, or like kinds of conflicts I just could not handle. But yeah, super, super weird reading year, y'all. Super totally. weird. Yeah. Oh, and you know what? I didn't go anywhere, so I wasn't listening to audiobooks as much. I probably got through like three or four. Well, and you have children at home all the time. All the time. So like, I don't know how you would read anything, quite frankly. Well, I do that 40. But after work, I sit on the sofa and I tell them, give me 45 minutes. Yeah. Just leave me alone for 45 minutes. And then that's like the only reading time I have. Right. Yeah. Thanks for indulging us in this this retrospective, everyone. Uh, all right. So, all right. We have to close out the show. That's the show. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening and hanging with us this year. Uh, it's been a rough one for everyone, some more so than others. And we are sending you all of the best vibes possible for moving into 2021. Thanks also go out to our intrepid audio editor, Jen Zink, who is possibly magic and does a great job making us sound presentable. If you are so inclined, we would love for you to leave a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other folks to find the show, which is always nice. And we do appreciate the feedback. Thanks go out to our sponsors who help make the show possible. And in between shows, you can find us on social media. Amanda, where are you? I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. I am also mostly on Instagram at I am Jen IRL. That's I A M J E N N I R L. And I actually just got back onto Tumblr, which has like what is delightful. Actually, yeah, who knew? But Tumblr <laughs> is the is the VIP of my end of 2020, and uh, you can find me on there at jenirl.tumblr.com. And that's our show. We'll see you next year. Woo woo.